When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. My name is Grace Fowler, and today we are going to talk about the film Don't Look Up. So this is a film that came out in the last few months, um, and is a kind of comedy film that talks about the end of the world and it's kind of an allegory for maybe some big issues that our world is facing. Um, But I wanted to talk about it because I thought it was interesting from several different points, one being the themes that are represented in the film, but also the way in which the film is attempting to communicate information, particularly about climate change. And I wanted to look into kind of the role of humor or comedy in things like science communication. So talking, I'm going to talk today about the themes of the movie, but also kind of like, how does the movie serve as maybe an example or a vehicle for science communication? And is it a good example of science communication or not? So we have a lot to talk about today. So let's just go ahead and dive right in. So first I'm going to start off giving kind of just a rundown of some of the main characters. I'm going to do a really brief synopsis of the movie and I do want to just upfront say that obviously big spoilers for the film Don't Look Up. So if you haven't seen it yet and want to be able to watch it before you listen to this episode then pause, go watch it, and then come back. Um, or maybe you want to hear my analysis first. I don't know. Either way, it's up to you, but just know that we're going ahead uh, and there will be spoilers. So let's talk about the main characters. First character we have is Kate Dibiaski. So she is a PhD candidate at the University of Michigan, and she is the scientist who first discovers that there is a comet um, headed toward Earth, and it is on track to hit Earth. Um, So she discovers it, so the comet is eventually named after her. Um, Then we have Randall Mindy, who is the astronomy professor and supervisor of Kate's work, who helps her to calculate out the path of the comet and realizes and confirms that the the comet will be hitting the Earth. Uh, Then we have Teddy Oglethorpe, who is the head of the planetary planetary defense coordination office, um, who works with Kate and Randall to tell the government about the comet. So he kind of represents... um, I guess what we might call the first line of defense within the government of uh, he he's kind of the first person they notify before it is as like told to anyone else in the government. Um, we have Brie Avanti. She is the host of a morning news show who eventually has an affair with Randall. Um, Janie Orlean, who is the president of the U.S., and then her son Jason Orlean, who uh, is also her chief of staff. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. 
Um, and then last we have Peter Isherwell. So he is a billionaire CEO of a company called Bash and a top donor to the president, which ends up becoming kind of a major component of one of the plot points. And as I usually tend to do with these types of episodes, there are more characters mentioned in the film and that play roles in the film, but um, I can't list off every single one of them, and these are the ones that I think are kind of the main characters. So long story short, the plot of the film is that these two scientists, Kate and Randall, discover a comet. It's on track to hit the Earth in six months, and they determine that based on the size of the comet, it would be an extinction level event if it hits the surface of the earth. They initiate the process to warn the government through Teddy Oglethorpe and are eventually met with apathy from the president, the media, and the public at large. One of the scientists, Kate, is eventually forced back home due to her quote-unquote emotional reactions to the end of the world. Um, Randall begins an affair with Brie and is sort of sucked into the celebrity status that he has achieved as kind of the face of the campaign to warn people about the comet. Uh, the government does have a contingency plan for this type of situation which is set into motion once the president agrees that this is a pressing issue. Um, however, that plan is tanked by Peter Isherwell, who has discovered that this comet is full of valuable minerals and acids that are used to build cell phones, and he wants to use his own technology to try to essentially like break the comet up into little pieces and land them safely on Earth so that they can be mined. Um, however, quite classically, his plan fails, and the comet ultimately does hurtle toward the Earth unstopped, and spoiler alert, destroys the Earth. So I, I wanted to start off by, you know, that I kind of given this overview of saying that I really did overall like the movie. I thought there were parts of it that were very funny. Uh, I thought there were parts of it that were very scary, and in fact, the last... I would say third of the movie, I was basically on the edge of a panic attack because I saw the tra trajectory that this was going in, that this comet was going to hit the Earth, and it was uh, very unsettling and honestly did make me think about things like climate change and how it feels like there are these big problems affecting the Earth and we seem to be kind of stuck and not able to solve them or, and not able to make any movement toward them. Um, and so that kind of like claustrophobic feeling of like, uh-oh, <laughs> like the end of the world could happen and there could be a situation in which the government does not protect us. Um, so yeah, I got it got a little dark for me and I, I did have a very like panicky reaction, uh, especially toward the end of the movie after they, they tank the first plan they take the government plan and decide to go with the, the billionaire plan. Um, and it is, uh, toward the end of the movie, you see a lot of, you get to see a lot of the characters reacting to the knowledge that they are going to die, that this is over, uh, that there's no way to stop this comet. And it, it is really difficult to watch people, even I know it's fake, it's a movie, <laughs> but to watch people kind of reconcile with, what does it mean that they are going to die, uh, that there's nothing they can do to save their lives, and knowing that a lot of the people on the globe were excluded from getting to make these choices about how we got to where 
uh, the comet was slamming into the earth, right? Like when the president decides to abort the government's mission and go with Peter's idea to mine the comet, um, that's not a, a decision that like the country votes on. And it's not a, a decision that anyone in the rest of the globe is even able to co- like comment on <laughs> because it is a decision made solely by the president of the United States and her top donor. So, uh, we we see that there are people, even when there's like big shots of just crowds, it's like it's people reacting to this knowledge that they are that their their world is ending and that they had absolutely no control over it and no say in like what was going to happen. Um, and and you know I'm going to talk about this a little bit more, but we kind of we see this a lot in that the uh, there are a few very rich and powerful people that escape on a spaceship. Um, at the end of the movie, that this was always the contingency plan, that the very wealthy and the very powerful, I think it's something like 200 people are allowed to be on the spaceship where they're going to be put into, like, deep sleep until the ship finds a um, planet that is suitable for human life. Um, but that's 200 people out of 7 billion people that live on the world, or on the Earth, that got to make that decision to escape. Um, and we see that the the even the wealthy, but not uber wealthy, and then the not powerful, all have these like very different reactions, um, which I, again, I'm going to talk about that more later. Um, uh, but, but it also kind of highlights that, that those who do not have knowledge of what is coming react with a lot more fear, right? That the, I think the movie is kind of one of their implicit messages is that like having knowledge can prepare you, um, even if it is to just die. <laughs> it's at least a known end versus an, an unknown end. Um, so that I think that kind of like I think sums up my um, my reaction was just I, I did really enjoy it. It just it did pull up a lot of emotions for me. And I, I did have the feeling of if you've ever watched the show Veep, which I will probably do an episode on because I, I love that show. Um, but in Veep, you're like watching uh, this like process of the government or people who are in the government kind of ignoring <laughs> experts or ignoring like the reality of the world around them and just kind of focusing on their own careers or, or gathering power. Um, and and in Veep, you you follow the politicians, but in this movie, I felt like we got to follow the people who come to the politicians to warn them because we're following uh, Kate and Randall, who are stunned that they have presented this information and that no one seems to care or, or want to take action on it. Um, and I think that is so much more terrifying to follow those people around who have the knowledge and have this warning than it is to follow the the politicians who are really unaffected <laughs> by the decisions they make. Because in the movie, the president always knew that she was going to get out on the spaceship. So the consequences of her actions are not the same. Um for her because she gets to live. (laughs) She gets to survive. I also had mentioned at the beginning of the episode that um, one of the things that I thought was interesting about this movie is that it kind of um, shows a, a model, maybe not a model to emulate, but it shows a model of how one could tell stories about climate change, right? Because Adam McKay, the, the creator and writer of the film, I believe he directed it too. Um, he has, he stated that when he originally wrote the film, it was solely about climate change. Um, but then in the process of preparing for production, 
the pandemic happened and he began to see that this um the movie like the sort of the symbolism of the comet could also represent something like a global pandemic where you feel like your government isn't making the right choices um and that a lot of people are going to perish because of this like event. Um, so he, he has kind of opened up the interpretation, but the original interpretation was supposed to be about climate change. And, and I think personally, I rec- I connected with that message a lot more um, because it was like an environmental thing. Um, and the feeling, I guess I have more of a feeling about climate change of it being unstoppable um, than I do about like the pandemic, like I, I feel like there are things that we can do and should have done to immediately not end it, but alleviate some of the issues of the pandemic. Whereas with climate change, it feels like even the things we know we could do to help might not be enough. And it just feels like a much bigger problem. And, you know, space, <laughs> I think space in my mind connected more with climate change than than like a pandemic or or like political unrest but anyway so like if we if we interpret this film as a story about climate change um and like impending doom (laughs) for the planet due to climate change um you know how good do we think it did at communicating its message right and 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 i would say that while there are many messages in the the movie one of the main messages is like the government is not doing what it's supposed to be doing. And what the government should be doing could save us, uh, but what it is doing instead is actively making the problem worse and ensuring our doom. Right? So that's, I think that's kind of like the main thing. So I wanted to look into this of like, is this a good example of telling stories about climate change? And the movie is, is pretty new, so there isn't a whole lot of research about like this or, or analysis of like this specific film. Um, but I did find an article in Slate that I thought was really interesting um, where the the author did talk to like scientists about communicating about climate change. And kind of one of the main points they had was that the weakness of this metaphor of the comet hitting the earth is that it kind of paints climate change as a one-time catastrophic event or maybe not even if you're not even conscious of it as climate change which just kind of paints it as a story about a one-time catastrophic event rather than kind of the creeping reality that is climate change right because if you're familiar with any of the discourse around climate change right it's things like the ocean is going to heat up one degree and i think to people like you and me who are not climate scientists although if you're listening and you're a climate scientist please feel free to chime in um those of us who are not climate scientists may think like oh a one degree temperature change in the ocean doesn't seem like all that much what you know how hard could it or how much damage could it do whereas the reality is that that does do a lot of damage right and there are people telling us that this is going to do a lot of damage and for every degree increase we get the more and more damage that there will be right so it's this like shift in our reality rather than sort of this one-time um, big thing. And so the the author of this Slate article, Adams, suggests that uh, climate change should actually be woven into the background of every movie that's made, that it should just become a reality that our characters that we watch live in, that maybe they're having to deal with things like 
fuel shortages or you know crop shortages because of changing temperatures or rising sea levels like that should just kind of be a part of the world of movies um and he doesn't really or this author does a really interesting job of kind of comparing it to the way that um like racism was portrayed in in media and that it's taken a long time to get to this point where we're able to create media that addresses the fact that racism is kind of ingrained in society or ingrained into certain parts of you know American society um, rather than telling these stories that are just like well this one person was racist or this one event was like a one-off racist event right that there are now there are now stories that and and movies and TV shows and things like that like address kind of the the way that it's in the environment and that climate change should be treated the same way right that it's it should be always kind of in the background and I thought that was really interesting and when I first read the article I had a little moment of panic of like oh I don't know if I can handle every movie being like <laughs> low level about climate change like that feels really panic inducing but I also felt like I think this author does have a really good point of that it's harder for us to avoid or deny having these conversations when they are in the fabric of the media that we consume. And I think it also can make it more accessible for, again, people like you and me who are not necessarily on top of all of the science about climate change. Maybe it's difficult for us to understand or have access to. And so having media representations of it makes it more accessible to us. So And also having media representations of like how to combat <laughs> climate change can serve to be a good model. So that's where this movie, Don't Look Up, falls kind of short is that, well, it's not necessarily a model of how to deal with climate change because one, the movie ends with failure, right? <laughs> Everyone dies. And two, it's not uh, a similar enough metaphor, right? It's It's kind of like this one big event happening versus this creeping change to our reality that is going to change, going to force us to adapt to it for a long time. You don't adapt to a comet slamming into the earth in six months. It just is a thing that will happen one day. Um, so, so there's that. And then I also, like I mentioned, was interested in, uh, how useful is it to use a comedy, like a comedic movie to engage in science communication, right? Like, is that a, uh, helpful way to spread information. So I looked up just uh, an article that was more generic about science communication, not necessarily about climate change, um, but looked at using humor to kind of spread information about science um, constructs or, or concepts. And in this study that was done by Pinto and Reich in 2017, which these authors seem to be, they, their name pops up a lot in the literature. They seem to be, um, this is an area that they work on a lot. So I, I you know, I thought their work was, was good to cite here. So uh, these authors looked at using a satirical play that communicated something about science and kind of took data from the audience of the play to see if they enjoyed the humor aspect of it and if felt like it was um, a useful useful tool for communicating. So they actually found that a majority of people when in this sample it preferred the humor in in the satire play to just you know like plain um, science communication, they seem to engage with the humor a lot more. Um, 
but the authors state that this could actually be a plus or a negative because the reality is, is that science communication is very vulnerable to misinformation, partly because sometimes the, the information we are communicating is very complex, requires certain expertise that the average person probably doesn't have, um, and there is just space within interpreting that for, for misinformation, um, and that they found that humor could have a potential to strengthen the, the spread of misinformation. In some samples it seemed to, it could boost it, whereas in others it seemed like it weakened it. So humor is something that has to be, they, they talked about it as basically being like a calculated risk of like, will implementing humor in a science communication boost like its visibility, um, but could it also make it more vulnerable to, to misinterpretation or misunderstanding from the audience it's directed at. Um, and, and I thought this was interesting because I, I guess I would consider this podcast to be a type of science communication because I'm communicating about psychological concepts, which whether you agree with me or not is a, is a science. It's a soft science, but it is a science. Um, you know, I'm communicating these concepts to an audience and I use humor uh, in the way that I communicate. And so I th- and this was like something that was important for me to consider too, was that if is there a, any time when communicating a construct or a concept that I want to share with the audience? Uh, am I like sacrificing the validity of the information to make a joke? Um, and that, that I should be, I guess, more conscious of the way that I employ humor in how I communicate with y'all. Um, but it was kind of promising that it seems like at least humor draws people in and kind of holds their attention a little bit more than just like very dry, plain science communication. So I think with everything, there is a a plus or minus. So I think that I saw some comments online that uh, people didn't like that this, that Don't Look Up was like a comedy or some people said that it wasn't funny enough. (laughs) Um, But I think that, that, you know, Adam McKay, he, he was working with a climate scientist on this uh, on the script. And so I think that he was very intentional in like using humor, but also not using it all the time. Like not every second of this movie is packed with jokes, um, which is good because there are other emotions and other information that needs to be communicated. But I thought that the, when there were jokes that they were pretty funny and they kept me engaged. Um, so I think it, it walked the line pretty well, but we'll see. We'll see if anyone is doing like more analysis on this especially like this film in particular or if this becomes maybe a direction the genre goes in uh like the disaster movie genre goes in then there will be more like media analysis and research but for now I'm gonna say comedy and science communication walk the line (laughs) take the take take the good with the bad uh and just you know be able to we should all be able to be aware of the impact that humor has on spreading misinformation. So that kind of I think wraps up my my reactions and kind of the more abstract way of thinking of the movie as a piece of communication. Um, but I want to talk about some of the themes that I noticed in the film um, and, and uh, themes that really stuck out to me because as you know we love to do themes here. <laughs> We're all about archetypes and. <laughs> theme analysis. Um, So I think one of the glaring 
themes that is popping up in the film is um, not believing in or implementing scientific discovery for political gains. So it's very early on in the film, it's shown that when Kate and Randall go to tell the president um, about the comet, that she is not particularly interested in having the news get out until after the midterm elections. Um, and the if my memory serves me right, the president doesn't explicitly say that, but she makes enough comments that Kate figures it out and, and says in the meeting, like, oh, you don't want us to talk about this until after the midterms because you're afraid that you'll lose the election. Your party will lose the election. Um, and so that's, I think that's like the very first example, but there are other examples of uh, the, not just the president, but also like other people involved in the government or the military who uh, don't seem particularly interested in implementing what the scientists are telling them, and that there are even scientists that are mentioned that disagree with the data uh, because they are backed by the government. So, like, for example, as we get closer to the end of the movie and it's been revealed that Peter wants to do this crazy plan to blow the comic up into smaller comments, um... Randall is given this report that says, oh, here's some, like, these top scientists in the field from, like, Harvard and Yale who have looked at the models and agree that, like, Peter's plan will work. And it's like, those scientists cannot guarantee that this will work because it's, like, a completely theoretical plan. There's, like, no actual evidence that it'll work. But those scientists for whatever reason, whether it's the prestige of their institution, wanting to make a lot of money, wanting to gain political power, um, they agree or kind of throw their, their the prestige of their name and their institution behind this plan. And that's one of the ways that they get more people on board with a plan that ultimately doesn't work. And that if someone who was unbiased had looked at that plan, might have been able to say like, and, uh, you know, not have had their judgment clouded by, by secondary gains. So I guess really the theme is, is not just that it's ignoring science for political gains, but it is ignoring science for any secondary gains. And, you know, not that every decision you make has to be based on like an algorithm and a scientific experiment, but that when we're making real world big decisions, it is a lot more useful to come from a place of information and education or knowledge than it is to come from uh, a place of like monetary motivation, right? Of like wanting to earn more money or, or make more money um, that, that, that can kind of cloud decision making. I also thought it was interesting that in this film, kind of going along with the political gains or, or gains uh, theme, is that they never explicitly mention political parties. Um, and you know, the film is set in mostly in America, although we do get these kind of stock footage <laughs> inserts of people from other countries like watching America screw the pooch. Uh, pardon my French, on, on this, pl uh, this plan. Um, and so you would expect there to be conversation about Democrats versus Republicans because it's taking place in America, but there is not. And although you could watch it and go ahead and say that, well, the president in Don't Look Up clearly is mirroring a Republican president we recently just had. She's 
scene wearing red in some of the first scenes, which is like the Republican colors, and she has some of the talking points of what might be classified as the Republican um the Republican side. And and I have seen online people saying that it's like, oh, it's obvious that she's like based on President Trump or it's obvious that she's a Republican. Um, but I think that very similar to, again, the show Veep, which I obviously need to do an episode on because I'm talking about it so much, um, that not mentioning the political parties um, gives you more space to make fun of kind of the entire spectrum. Um, and that the reality is, is at least from my perspective, that some of the things that the president in the film says could very much come out of a Democratic president's mouth, just as much as a Republican president's mouth. Um, and that they do things like show her wearing red and blue um, in the film. She, you know, she doesn't exclusively wear red. And that we, we've seen, especially very recently, that there are examples of Democratic or Democrat politicians engaging in activities to gain them what more wealth than looking out for the, the better interests of people. And I think one of the best examples of this is all these reports of insider trading coming from like the Senate and the House uh, and the Congress, um, and that people who are representing us are using the information that they have access to as being a part of the government to make money in the stock market. Um, and that's like purely a secondary gain for them. And they're ignoring their responsibility and their role as a representative <laughs> of the people um, and are not making moves to block this type of behavior or stop it. Um, and it's happening on both sides of the aisle. So I think kind of looking at don't look up at, I think it's important to look at it as like, it's not about which party is in power, but the fact that some, when we get, when people get into power, they kind of lose touch with what is important. And whether you're a Democrat, a Republican, an independent, one of the bajillion third parties we have that never get much attention, no matter which party you're part of, there is a possibility that the power and the access you get from the highest political office in this country uh, maybe corrupts, <laughs> maybe absolutely corrupts, um, and that, that that's going to happen regardless of your ideology, and that maybe some of our politicians, whether they, whatever aisle, side of the aisle they say they're on, they may not have that strong of an ideology, so they are more swayed by the power um, when they get into office. And and I think that this is demonstrated really clearly with one of the scenes of the movie where Randall and Min- and Kate are in the president's office and she pulls out a pack of cigarettes and starts smoking a cigarette. And Randall makes a comment of like, oh, I thought you like, had quit smoking because that had been a talking point she had during her campaign. And she said, oh, I was trying, um, but... I snuck a cigarette one day and someone, a paparazzi, took a picture of me and it was published and the next day after it was published I went up three points in the polls. So since then I've I've been smoking publicly. And we see her willing to do a behavior, to like completely shift her behavior because it gained her a little more access or a little more power, right? She got three points up in the poll which means she's that much closer to becoming president during a campaign. So. 
that's all I'm saying. I know this is not a political podcast. <laughs> this is a psychology podcast, but I did really enjoy the way that politicians were portrayed uh, in this show in particular. Now, there are some other mentions of, I believe they call it the Patriot Network, which is like a TV channel that is dedicated to pretty clearly conservative talking points, and it is very obviously Fox News. Um, so, the, you know, the, the movie isn't like subtle on everything, but again, just like Veep, Don't Look Up does this thing where political parties are not named, which I think, again, makes it more accessible to anyone to watch, um, and also makes it easier to criticize or critique either side of the aisle um, with this piece of, of art. So that's that's my thought on, on that theme. Um, another theme I noticed, again, which I had mentioned before, is that how people react to the end of the world or to their impending doom. And I noticed several main reactions. We, Like I said, we have the, the very rich who flee. Um, we see rioting or panicking. Uh, we see engaging in like pure hedonisms, like sex, drinking, eating, and then we see drawing close to loved ones. So the uh, toward the end of the film, we, we're seeing these scenes of there are people in the streets rioting, like looting, basically just like losing their minds in the street out of fear. Um, and then at the same time, it's, it's a really interesting shot. It's kind of like juxtaposed where we see a street of people rioting and then a rooftop like restaurant where people are like ultimate partying drinking having sex with each other eating like they're they're really juxtaposed um and i thought that the the film doesn't necessarily say that any of those are bad it it well okay to be fair the film does imply that the rich fleeing (laughs) is not going to work out well for them because when they get to their new planet, they are immediately attacked by the life forms on the planet. So it's kind of like, it's not the best idea for them, to, or the best outcome to flee. Um, but the, the the movie doesn't make any commentary on like the people rioting or doing worse things than the people having a party versus the people who like gather at their home. Um, it's just kind of showing that people make, people react to things in different ways and we can all be reacting to the same event, the same stimulus, right? A, a comet hitting the planet, but we will have different outcomes in, in how we react to them. And there is, shouldn't be any shame in your reaction, right? If your reaction is to go out on the street and break all the windows, that is a reaction to fear, right? To panic, to terror. And that's almost exactly the same motivation as the people who go to a bar and drop all of their money on bottles of expensive alcohol, right? It's, it's a reaction and, uh, it's, it's none of them should instill in you shame because again, the movie is very clear that like the world is going to end, right? That, that this is it for people. Um, and and I did think it was interesting that Kate and Randall toward the end of the movie, um, that we see them, Going back to Randall's family, um, Kate has her her partner or her like I don't know if they're really partners, but like a temporary partner with her. Um, the uh, Randall's family is like cooking dinner. They sit down together. Teddy is with them. Doctor Oglethorpe is with them. 
Um, they are having just like a very quiet night. They are all saying what they are grateful for. And as the shaking starts and they realize that the comet has hit and that, you know, impact or the earthquakes are about to come, they all hold hands um, and just like very peacefully accept their death, essentially. And again, the movie doesn't make any commentary on like that Randall and Kate have done the best thing that their, their response is the best response. Um, we see like snapshots of other people at the at the time before the impact and kind of what they're doing other than the main characters. Um, Brie, for example, is shown to, she, she tells her coworkers she just wants to like drink and gossip about co- coworkers, like people she doesn't like, like that's all she wants to do at the end, uh, as the end is drawing near. And it's like, you know, that's within her, that's her reaction, right? And, um, I thought that 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 was probably the piece for me that was the most allegorical to COVID and to helping us understand why some people had some very strong or very unique reactions to things like the lockdown um, that might not make sense to everyone, right? So, and again, I think this spans the spectrum of behavior. So whether it's something like protesting at the state capitol about lockdowns all the way to people who were who are like still wiping down their groceries before they come in the house, even though that's, that's not a recommended technique anymore. Um, you know, the, those total range of, of reactions are based in fear, right? Of like their, whether it was fear about actually catching the virus or fear of the government doing something to your family or taking your rights or, you know, whatever unfortunate idea you had, um, those were reactions to fear. And I think that this is a good, this film gives a good reminder of people may react in ways that you aren't reacting, but it doesn't mean that they're not experiencing the same thing that you are experiencing. And that helps us to think, to have empathy for other people and to understand them better, right? Of when you see people gathering for a protest with like big guns and not wearing masks, you can have a better understanding of them of like, oh, this is coming from a place of fear. Like, I know that feeling of fear and I can relate to that feeling of fear even if I don't relate to the reaction. Um, and I think that helps us to have, you know, more of a common, common ground um, and understand each other better. So I, I, I like that. I think it was a really small piece. It wasn't necessarily the whole message of the movie. It was quite small, but um, I really liked it. And I thought it was um, really beautiful to show all these different types of reactions um, and to, again, not shame like the people who were doing things like drinking or writing, right? Like there was no shame for that. And I think there was shame. There was meant to be shame toward the people who flee. Um, But that is a different issue because again, that's like 200 people out of 7 billion people. And the reality is that again, people like you and me are not going to, we are not going to get to reserve a place on a spaceship or a bunker uh, for the end of the world, right? So you and me, listener, we're, we're going to be riding in the streets or crying at home or whatever our reactions are. We are not going to be on that spaceship. Um, unless there's some billionaires listening, which in that case, feel free to donate <laughs> some money <laughs> anywhere. <laughs> um, but anyway, I digress. Um, moving on to the next theme, which I think kind of rolls very nicely from the the emotional fear conversation um, is that the film had a lot to say about showing the 
the difference between how women and men are perceived. So this is really clear in the way that Kate and Randall are treated in the media. So uh, there is a scene toward the beginning of the, the movie where Kate and Randall go on the morning news show to um, share their their news of the comment with the media because the president is not listening to them. So they decide they're going to go public. And they're speaking about it, and we notice that Kate is getting very frustrated because the hosts don't seem to understand how dire the situation is, that this is... Uh, going to mean the end of the world they're not getting it they're not getting it and so she ends up screaming basically like we're all going to die she's like I like she's communicating how serious this is and she's saying like everyone will die and then she leaves the set because she's become like overwhelmed with the fear of that and we we see Kate actually throughout the film having these like these very react emotional reactions where she's like she's crying she's uh or she gets really angry like she she expresses her emotions um and is always able to connect it back to um fear like she is very articulate that her reactions are coming from a, a place of fear um so after that scene in the movie where she has this this reaction um it's show and and Randall is left on set and he continues the interview uh, and tries to kind of explain her reaction and and let people know like this is very serious. There's this like montage of kind of like internet reactions and Kate becomes a meme, right? She becomes a joke. She's kind of the laughing stock of the internet. There are all of these um, articles and jokes about how she's like unstable her ex-boyfriend actually writes an article he's a journalist he writes an article about how he was dating her and thought she had bipolar disorder so like she's being diagnosed in the media um and the 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 part that is so infuriating is that she is right like she is right everyone is going to die um and the world is going to end and what she everything that she said was true she just was communicating in a way that was very emotionally expressive. Um, and I could not help but think about um, Britney Spears. And I have done an episode on her if you want to go back at, and listen to that. But I could not help thinking about this like insistence that because Britney Spears publicly showed emotion um, and was going through a difficult time, she was deemed to be like too mentally ill to take care of herself. Um, and had her life ruined, although, God bless, she's out of the conservatorship now, um, and I might do an update soon to just kind of talk about what that means, um, like, legally and like mental health-wise to for a conservatorship to end, but um, I digress, but I just thought it was very interesting that um, it, this is still an issue we're wrestling with in the media, of, like, women who uh, maybe express their emotions in a strong way or in a very vibrant way are seen as like too unstable or like even seen as like mentally ill um when that's not the reality at all and that in fact I think that Kate's reaction is incredibly valid right especially if we see in light of the last point I was making about the film not shaming people for their reaction on like at the actual time of the comment um and I think that Kate's reaction is uh, totally valid and and I really felt for her and and I think her character helped to make it feel a lot real right she she, like, she knew what was coming and you really believe her um, and at the same time 
this montage of like her being made a joke, we see this montage of Randall being seen as not only like very competent and people seeming to believe him, um, but there also being a lot of internet conversation about how like attractive he is, right? Of like he's attractive while Kate is like ugly and has an ugly haircut, right? So there's even like this comparison of their physical attractiveness based on their emotional displays. So I was like, okay, the film is laying this out, but what does the research say (laughs) about perceptions of emotions between these two genders? So I actually found this really interesting study um, done by Hess et al. in 2000, um, which would predate Britney Spears as well. Britney Spears is um, like kind of public uh, difficulties. So I thought it was relevant. <laughs> um, they they did a, a study where they had people, they had men and women. Um, and again, the study is old. So it's, it's, I'm assuming that everyone is, a, is cisgender. They, they weren't collecting data on trans identities or, or non gender non-conforming identities. So, you know, caveat there. Um, but they had men and women report like themselves on their emotional reactions and then report on what they thought people expected them to do. Um, and then they did a, a thing where they looked at um, their appraisal process. So that was like, how did you uh, kind of process the, the situation, the emotional situation? So what they found is that women uh, had were expected by both groups to be more likely to react with sadness in negative emotion events. So if something negative were to happen, like let's just say, for example, like finding out that you lost a job, uh, women were expected to be sad, to react with sadness to that. Um, They were, they expected themselves to be sad. So men expected them to be sad. Women expected themselves to be sad and to, in addition, cry or withdraw. Um, and the women did actually report more sadness in regards to personal events than men. In contrast, women and men expected men to react with more happiness or serenity during negative emotional situations. So losing a job, they were expected to either be happy or to be um, kind of calm or serene, men expected themselves to react that way and expected themselves to laugh, smile, or be more relaxed. Um, and men had tended to report more happiness in the study when describing their negative personal events. So overall, there was a matchup between the expectation the two genders had on each other and their own expectations. So like women matched their own expectations for their emotions with what men expected of them. So there was like a dual pressure on both gender groups to react in certain ways to negative emotional situations. Interestingly enough, men reported that they were more likely to react with shame to a variety of situations. So they reported more feelings of shame than the women did, but there was no expectation for them to feel that way. And I think the the interesting there is that shame is, is generally very internal. Like it's there's we don't have a lot of facial expressions that are associated with shame, whereas we do have a lot more for like sadness or happiness. So it seemed as though men were displaying happiness, but having a sense of shame at some of these um, 
events and that it seemed that the shame was coming up for them in a variety of events, not just the negative personal events. Um, so that was kind of like the, the unique thing for the, the, the group of men in the study. Um, and then, like I had mentioned, the last thing they did was looked at appraisals and they said that there was no difference in appraisals between the men and the women, which suggests that the differences in emotional expression were due to general stereotype rather than appraisal difference. So I said a lot of words there. So let me back that up. Basically what that part means is that so the men and women in the study did not experience the stimuli, the negative emotional event or negative personal event. They did not experience those differently. They kind of saw them very similarly, right? So like again, if we're using the losing a job example, like both men and women like appraised losing a job the same way and were able to like kind of take in that information in the same way. It was the output, right? The the reaction that differed between the groups, which suggests that it is this pressure, right? These expectations that both groups had that shapes the way that the, the output comes out. So the expectation to be sad from men and women direct women to react sadly or with sadness and the expectation for happiness for men and women directs men to react with the happiness or the calmness. And I thought this was so interesting because that's like basically what we see in the movie, right? Is Kate is expressing sadness. She she expresses like anger and, and fear and other things as well, but it it it's, comes out as sadness because she's observed to be like crying a lot. Um, and Randall is his emotions sort of come out as like this he does seem almost blank like it's very serene until the end of the film there is a point in which the film shifts and and Randall is able to recognize that um he's been kind of duped into this role um and that like his role as a scientist is being used to justify this like very bad program and he kind of goes on a rampage and we see him like yelling and expressing anger um But we also see Randall experiencing a lot of shame because he got sucked into the celebrity life. So it honestly, I think it does track with what this study found. Um, And I would be curious to see this study replicated in 2022, right? Like, you know, 20 years later to see if those expectations for men and women and others remain the same, right? If there's still an expectation to see women... um, express sadness and and men to express the happiness right I'm, I would hope that after 22 years we've kind of opened the possibilities for people but I don't know I don't know I don't know what to expect um okay just a few more things that uh, that that I noticed in this film that I thought were cool to talk about um they kind of go together so money and technology um so and I say they go together because Peter it represents both, right? He is the tech guy, but he also is the billionaire, so he has the money to uh, sway political opinions, right? And I looked up to see, is it true, I did a little research on, like, is it true that money interferes with our ability to make decisions? Um, and I found this this interesting study from 2013 that was actually looking at managers in like office settings, like corporate settings, and looking at their ethical decision making. So 
when they had to make a decision like would they take the most ethical route and they found that people who were scoring very high on a measure of love of money so like money being a priority the higher their love of money score was the less likely they were to make ethical decisions so <laughs> that's like it's correlational right correlational we can't say causation but it does seem to be um related that this like focus on money makes it more difficult uh, factor in ethics when making decisions and I thought this, this was very applicable to the scenario in the movie where Peter essentially decides for the country, because he's a top donor, that we're not going to destroy the comet, but we are going to try to mine it. Uh, that is an inherently unethical decision because you are putting literally billions of lives on the line for making money. And, like, that's a pretty clear example of your love of money <laughs> being very high um, because I believe the number bantied around is, like, hundreds of trillions of dollars uh, of, of value out of this comet. And it's pretty explicit that the people making this decision value the money more than they value, again, billions of lives because it's not just America that's going to get hit by the comet. Like, the entire world is going to be destroyed and you know this character Peter is already a billionaire right he like already has so much money that like you he probably can't even spend it he, he definitely cannot spend it in his lifetime um, but he is still like pursuing more and more money and he it's very clear that money gives him power right that because he is a top donor he's like the top donor to the president we see him in the movie able to like walk into the war room and just like uh like without security knowing like he just walks in and has access to all of these like government secrets and and you know i think the movie very rightly it seems that sees that as alarming right that like it's it should not be possible for someone who is not an elected official to have this type of role in the government to be able to walk in and make these decisions um, and and without consulting even other elected officials, right? Like in, in the scene where Peter walks into the war room and the mission is aborted, the other people in the room who are, although not always elected officials as there are like generals and, and cabinet members, but, you know, people in the government that it are like public figures are known to be in the government and to be you're supposed to be working for the people, those people are unaware of why he's allowed to walk into the room um, and and are not told about this decision, um, that it's not until the president announces it and then it becomes clear that it's like, well, it was Peter's idea because of all these minerals in the comet. Um, and, you know, I, I saw online, I was looking online a lot, <laughs> as you can't tell, but I saw online people saying like, oh, well, Peter's supposed to represent Elon Musk, or, you know, I, I saw that the most, that he's supposed to represent Elon Musk, but I really think that he is kind of a, as a character, he's a kind of homunculus, horrifying combination of a lot of the billionaires or very wealthy men uh, in our society. Because I saw elements of like Bill Gates, um, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk for sure. Um, 
even Steve Jobs, because um, the the way that he like dresses and announces technology stuff, he's he's an amalgamation of all of these kind of, I guess, archetypes of, of billionaires, um, and which I think is more terrifying as them all being combined into one person. Um, but there is a coldness to Peter that I think is really important for people to see that just because somebody has a lot of money doesn't mean mean that they are making decisions that is for the best interest of any everyone. We have data to back it up, right? That love of money may lead to less ethical decision making. Um, and, and that this archetype of Peter is such a parable of if someone, just because someone is very wealthy, does not mean that they are making decisions for the best interest. And if uh, in fact, he is making decisions specifically for himself and to grow his wealth. I think something we can take away from this film and from this character is that when we see things like, oh, for example, Bill Gates pressuring companies to um, not open up the patent for the vaccines, uh, we need to keep in mind uh, what is the motivation for that decision is the motivation to better the lives of people around the world um, or is that decision to keep making money um, because from where I sit and again I'm just I'm just a guy <laughs> making a podcast uh, from where I sit that decision seems to be very financially motivated and that in fact it harmed millions of people's lives because um, some countries were not able to make their own vaccine because the patent was, was controlled and they fell far behind the rate of vaccination and are now dependent on countries like the UK and America for vaccines. And this is where variants are coming from of the virus, right? Because the virus is able to spread more quickly through unvaccinated people and is more deadly to unvaccinated people. So who did that decision benefit to keep the patent locked and to keep the to prevent the vaccine beca- from becoming open source? And why is Bill Gates the person who's making the decision? Right? He's not an elected official. He's not even a medical professional. He's a tech guy. He made a computer. Okay, now I sound really dumb. <laughs> like he's not a doctor. He's not an epidemiologist. He's not even someone who knows how to make a vaccine he just funds um organizations that you know promote vaccination which great that he's like putting money into a very needed organization but does having that amount of money make him um able to make decisions about things he's not qualified to make decisions about um, and I think that the movie shows that, right? That Peter makes decisions about things he's not qualified to make decisions about. He has this idea that they're going to, like, blow up the comet and then attach drones to it to, like, rocket ship the comet pieces down to Earth so that they don't crash. Uh, but it's just, like, not possible. It just, like, doesn't work. Which, oh, I think that's another person to include is Elizabeth Holmes, right? Of, like, this archetype of someone who just says an idea will work. <laughs> they have no backing, um, like no evidence for that idea, um, but are able to raise lots of money off of it, right? And I think Peter kind of embodies that as well of like, he just said an idea and got a scientist to fake the data or, 
you know, fudge the theoretical model so that he could say that this will work, and then it like very clearly did not work. So that's my little rant about money um, and decision making, and that I think as people who are citizens of countries, you know, members of societies and cultures, it's important for us to know that and be aware that just because someone has a lot of money um, does not make their decisions more valuable, and in fact may, especially if they are somebody who has a high love of money and is pursuing more, um, that's going to be a potential factor in limiting their ability to make ethical decisions that, that benefit everyone. So that's just... I think a takeaway and and kind of rolling into my last theme is I did think the way that technology played a role in this film was very subtle but very interesting um, and so the main technology company is called bash um, and in fact when the when the movie started when the the credits popped up there was something in the production credits about like bash media or like bash content. And I remember thinking, like, I don't, I've never seen that production company before. <laughs> like, maybe it's a new one. Um, but it was a reference to this company and that the Bash uh, content, whatever, what isn't like a real company. It's 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 from this movie. Um, but then throughout the movie, we see the Bash logo on things. Everyone has a Bash phone, uh, like alarm clocks, TVs, sponsorships for different shows we see throughout the um Throughout the the movie, are bash 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 bash, which it's like what a name, right? It's really bashing you over the head. Um, but it it so it's it's very subtle, right? And then we only really see um, a, a few like e- explicit mentions of it. And so one of the first ones is that Peter is at a tech, I guess it's kind of like a press conference like they do where they like show off what the new iPhone is going to look like. He's doing that for the new phone, which uh. It's supposed to, you hold it in your hand and it reads like your oxygen levels and your blood flow and your temperature and measures like all the neurotransmitter levels and decides what mood you're in and then sends you things to bring your mood back to happy. So you're not allowed to feel (laughs) any emotions. You are just being like constantly prodded by your phone to be happier, to be happy, happy, happy all the time. Um, And that's kind of like, his big showcase of his new, uh, his new technology. And again, the film just kind of breezes on through this because it's, you know, it's not a focus of the film. The the film is focused on the comet. Um, but I was like, this is terrifying of like the, the, like if this were to be real, of there to be a phone that can like scan your neurotransmitters and know what level they're at, like, which first of all, that's, I don't even know if that's possible to measure because of like the way that neurotransmitters work, but you know, that it's constantly tracking all this biological data about your body. Like that is truly terrifying. Um, and, and gives corporations or tech companies like way too much access to you as a consumer. So I I was like, oof, I would, I think we could do a whole movie (laughs) just about this, like this aspect of it. Um, but then there are other, other things, right? So we see that um, Randall's, Randall has these adult sons who, who kind of pop up in the movie. And there's a, a scene where they're watching TV in preparation to see their dad's first interview. And the segment before is uh, about a pop star who just broke up with her boyfriend. And they're like orchestrating the, the couple getting back together on this, this 
television program. So the the sons are sitting with their mom watching the show, waiting for their dad to come on. And as the pop star gets on screen and starts talking, they notice that their phones are going off and one of the sons, his phone like auto buys like six of her songs and another one, his phone sends him like six different news articles and like links to her social media or, or something like that. Like it's it's the, the phone is like tracking what they're watching on TV and then sending them content uh, on their phone without their permission <laughs> or knowledge. Um, and again, the film just glosses right over it. Like the the son just goes like, oh, that's weird. It just b- downloaded six of her songs, but then it's like never touched on because again, the comet is heading toward the the Earth. <laughs> there's, there's a much bigger problem. Is this massive comet is going to slam into the Earth? But I think this is a good illustration of it can be really hard to focus on all the things that are happening, all the things that have a potential to go wrong, when we're focused on this like one big crisis, um, and that even as we are fighting climate change it is also important to keep our eyes on like the encroaching technological grip <laughs> that some of these companies companies have on us right like um like in the sh- in the movie right it's access to your biological data in real life it's access to all of your like online data right what you what you buy where you visit um you know all the things that you click on while you're online like that is being tracked um and uh, Peter has a, a, a scene in the movie where he is very clear to, he tells Randall, like, we mine data from every person in the world. Like, everyone who has a Bash phone or a Bash product, which is, it's implied that it's pretty much everyone. Anyone who has a Bash product is, their data is being mined, and they are using this data to create, um, like, an ultimate algorithm to predict every possible behavior or choice that the person would make so that they can sell them more stuff, right? And he tells Randall, like, um, I know how you're going to die. Like, the algorithm tells me how you're going to die and, uh, like, tells him, like, I know I know exactly how you're going to die. And he just, and, and Peter just presents this as, like, this is the fact. Like, this is what we do. We mine this data and we make money off of it. And, um, you know, I thought it was very interesting that he has all this data in the world, <laughs> he's mining all this data, but he doesn't once use this information to solve the comet problem. <laughs> he, he uh, you know, maybe his algorithm doesn't seem to be able to point out that maybe Randall and Kate are right. <laughs> it just tells him what kind of socks they should buy, what, what ads to send to them. It's, it's not a very useful algorithm. Um, but again, it's like this is just kind of a side plot of the movie is this like horrible encroachment of technology on people's lives. And you can't go through the movie without noticing the presence of Bash um, and the way that it kind of infiltrates into people's lives and the way that they are consuming information. Um, and that I, I think that is just such an important thing to hold on to if you've watched this movie is that, you know, all these other things can be going on, but we have to be able to keep our attention on multiple issues, right? Like pe- people like the character of Peter shouldn't be allowed to sell our data like that or to to hold all this information about us without our knowledge, without our understanding, without our consent, right? We talked about consent in the Squid Game episode, right? People have to need to have an understanding of what is being done with the data that's being collected about them. Um, And that if all we're doing with this data is selling people more stuff and we're not using it to solve some of the big problems, like 
you know, climate change, <laughs> uh, then what's the point, right? Like, what's the point of just selling each other's stuff into eternity when we could be using it? If we're, if it's already collected, if they if they've got it, then why not use it to, I don't know, improve the world <laughs> and make maybe help people learn things or or get the resources they need, but. Whatever. I I digress once again. Um, That's about wraps it up for me on this episode. I think I could talk about this movie a lot longer. Um, You know, I kind of wanted to just give kind of a brief overview of what I I saw, some of the research I thought that that helped explain some of the themes. Um, And, you know, to overall say that I do recommend this movie. Um, I think it is an interesting piece of art as it does bring up some uncomfortable feelings. it's not a perfect piece of art. There are, there are, are places where it could be improved, ways in which it could tell its story better, but I think that it it does present an opportunity for us to wrestle with some difficult topics um, that are needed and a, and a conversation that we can continue to keep having. And like Adam's article says, I hope that we can keep this... Um, conversation about climate change in the media, right? Like to kind of keep it going in the background of other conversations that we're having because it is so important. And, you know, sometimes it's good to have a little laugh during your end of the world movie. Um, Maybe it helps the medicine go down or helps us to cope a little bit better. I know that I obviously cope with humor. Um, But yeah, I just, that that kind of wraps up what I have to say. I did really enjoy it. I would love to hear your thoughts on this film, what stood out to you. Um, maybe you noticed things that I didn't notice or had a different, um, like, appreciation for, for some of the things in the film. So, as always, you can reach out on social media or through the email uh, that will run at the end of the episode. Um, and as always, I ask you to please rate and review on whatever app you are using to listen to the podcast. I really appreciate it. It helps spread the show to more people so that more people can join our our conversations um and with that i just want to say thank you and i will see you in the next episode bye bye to see the sources and resources mentioned in the episode visit psychologicallymindedpod.com or click the link in the show notes to contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you and see you in the next episode.